The first step in getting closer to God is to realize that you need to or that you want to. And the second step in getting closer to God is to realize that it's possible. I want to encourage you to check out my book, Getting Closer to God, Anthologies from the Forefront Trilogy, Book 2. I think this will really be helpful to you in your pursuit of the Lord and help you understand what I learned over the first 30 plus years of my life as a believer, as a minister, and as a missionary in uh, a lot of the countries of the earth. Check it out. Anthologies from the Forefront, Book 2, Getting Closer to God. It's on Amazon. Are you looking for God to change you? Oftentimes, when we head out on a short-term mission trip, we expect to be part of changing the people or nation that we're visiting. That's what Jason Harris often expected to see happen when he visited Haiti. But the reality was quite different. Welcome to From the Forefront podcast by FX Missions. We believe that God calls us beyond where we are, equips us for the unforeseen, and gives us the victory, even if we don't ever see the victory ourselves. We're kind of jumping in at the middle here after Jason bought a one-way ticket to Haiti. For the incredible backstory of God's redemption and healing, listen to episode 64. As we continue this conversation, we're going to hear from Jason how God often upends his expectations and provides something much better, even if it's harder than expected. One thing that really stood out, though, is that where Jason's headed now involved him noticing a gap that wasn't being filled and asking God to allow him to be the person who stands in that gap. I wonder sometimes if we would be better served asking God to reveal the needs around us than seeking for a vision or calling. Just a thought. With that, let's hear what Jason has to share with us. Hi, Scott McClellan here for FX Missions Podcasting. Thanks for being with us. Hey, we're back with Jason Harris. You remember the great hope of Haiti himself from our previous podcast, of course. If you haven't heard the first session, there'll be some links here for you, but you want to go back to that and check out the first section when Jason left the United States with no return ticket, one-way trip to Haiti. He's going to get all the problems solved, get things sorted out over there. That was pretty dramatic. I knew your story pretty well, Jason, but I discovered some things. Let's just put it that way. I learned some things. Thanks for being here, man. Appreciate it much. Thank you, Scott. You're quarantined right now, so you're getting extra credit on this on this particular session. <laughs> Hopefully you guys can punch through on the stuff that's going around the house there, but thank you for carving out some time here to be with us. Thank you. Let's kind of pick it up from you were in Haiti. You had a one-way ticket. The first time you went, you didn't even have a passport. The second time you went, you were going to get things sorted out over there. You had a missionary mind. You wanted to be like Paul, impact the nations, live among the people, be one with the people you were working with. Am I right? Yes. That was the mindset at the time. Hey, I love it, man. I love it. That was a good, bold start. A good, bold start. Yeah. <laughs> 
Obviously, you didn't stay in Haiti. How long were you there that time? About six months, I think. Okay. Did your visa run out or how did it happen that you couldn't stay in Haiti anymore? To be honest with you, this was my first trip out of the country, so I knew nothing about visas. Well, no, this was my second time out. Your first time legally out of the country, your second time. Right. The second time uh, to Haiti, but the first time you didn't even have a passport. Wow. Yeah, I did have a passport this time. I thought that the passport was all you had to have. I didn't know anything about visas. Nobody told me. Nobody asked any questions. I just had a one-way ticket there. So my whole uh, trip down there, I mean, I met a lot of people from the UN, you know, different embassies and stuff, and nobody ever questioned me about it. Well, that's good. (laughs) That is good. You know, that's good. You had a lot of favor, and also there was a cloaking device of the Holy Spirit that was hovering around you. The several times after that that I went, it definitely was a lot stricter. Yeah. This was the last lenient trip. (laughs) The only time I went to Haiti was right after the earthquake where the palace fell. That was the only time. We were sending a team down there, and I was doing a scouting basically a prep trip for a team I was sending. But uh, that's the only time I went to Haiti. It was an experience. I do remember that being the case. It was definitely an experience. How many times overall have you been to Haiti? Is it four or five? Uh, my wife and I were talking about that today. I think no, about eight, eight or nine times. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. That is cool, man. You definitely got the Haiti badge uh, <laughs> on your uniform, I think for sure. But somewhere between now and then, or then and now, you came back to the States, you got a job, you went to work, you got married, you started a family, and you had taken some next steps in your own personal journey. Well, that trip that I went there for close to six months, that was the pivotal point of my life. I learned so much, and I know you know this, being a missionary, oftentimes when we go to places, of course, you know, Haiti's the only place I've been out of the country. But every single time that I've gone, you have this ambition that you're going to do whatever to change the nation. You want to go and be an impact. There's something specific that you want to do. But I'm telling you, every time I go down there, I come back. I'm the one that's been changed. Yes, no question. I'm tracking with you. That is the part about short-term missions that I think it's maybe a best-kept secret from people who haven't been. You get impacted significantly and sometimes far beyond what you yourself do. But we know, too, from the scripture that Paul talked about going to the Romans. He wanted to be with them and he wanted to impart a spiritual gift to them. But he also said that the way this impartation works and the way this thing works is that we're encouraging each other with our mutual faith. So it's never going to be 100 percent either way. It's going to be a collaboration and something that we both contribute to. Both those we're going to and those we're sent to are contributing back to us. Sounds like that's what happened to you. You probably did more than you thought. (laughs) Well, I really learned a lot from that trip. That's where it birthed the, you know, when I look back and I process, that's where I stand today is the importance of relationship for one, you know, that you can't do this alone. It truly does take both parties in whatever you do. You know, it's collaborative change for sure. And, you know, while I was down there, you know, a lot of the adversity that was going on through the whole six months was there was hurricanes that I was in the middle of. There was a lot of civil unrest. 
you know, there was a lot of things going on that it was like taking me from one city to another. You know, when I first got there, it was primarily just to be a part of what Ghana Eve was doing, you know, what the family I was staying with, what they were doing in Ghana Eve. And then when the hurricane hit there, it sent me to Port-au-Prince. And then from there, I was sent to Carfu. And then from Carfu, I was sent to St. Mark and then back to Port-au-Prince to head out to the United States. And it was just, through all that, I met so many people. I had a couple of trips after that. But then when it really started, you know, being helpful was after, the, you know, you mentioned after the earthquake in 2010. Yeah. I went there after the earthquake primarily to help one ministry. You know, that was a horrific trip. Those things that I saw, it wasn't just passing out rice and beans. It was we were pulling bodies out of rubble and just ended up being a really tough trip. But after I came back was really where my vision was really birthed. You know, we had talked at the beginning of the last podcast, you know, about when I got out of Teen Challenge, mm -hmm. there was a, a huge gap that was right. there, you know, with in recovery. But I had my hopes on starting a program or something like that for addicts and alcoholics and homeless. I wanted to develop something. But where I really feel like the Lord was showing me my calling was after I came back from Haiti after the earthquake, a lot of people were asking where to go, what they can do, how they can contribute, where the donations can go and this and that. And so mm -hmm. it was mostly like I wasn't just a missionary in Haiti, but I was a missionary for Haiti here and networking for people, introducing people from the states to groups down in uh Haiti connecting them and so that they could go on trips and so that they could make donations and so they could send, you know, stuff down to them. And that's where it really became helpful. And then I saw immediately, that's it. I want to be that networker, that bridge between people, mm -hmm. what I really wanted to do. And so that's where all this got birthed out at is how can I bridge that gap between people that are looking to get in recovery and the resources that are already out there? Right. As we talked about, and folks who haven't heard the first podcast, please do, as we said, go back and check that out. I want to summarize the whole first podcast. You had a history in addiction. You were kind of trying to kill yourself uh, unsuccessfully, thank God. You weren't very good at killing yourself, so you failed it, you know, a couple of times. Even with the dramatic attempting to do some simple things to get it done, didn't work out. Thank you, Jesus, for that. You went through some recovery. You got what you felt was a missionary call and impression. And really, that reckless approach to life informed your approach. You went to Haiti without a passport. You somehow got out into the country. You came back. You went again. You basically approached life somewhat recklessly. And, and I think you're a pretty careful guy now. You're definitely not as young as you were, and you're not nearly as skinny as you were. <laughs> <laughs> but you're holding up awesome from that point of view. Let me say that for sure. But in your process of going from recovery to being established sort of in life, you recognized a gap there where you had a heart to be a facilitator of resource connections, those kinds of things. You played that out some in Haiti. I know that you and I have talked a number of times over the years. You drafted some documents. We went over some stuff. Obviously, we were at one time living close proximity and meeting every week or so. 
we were talking through some of these things. He always had a heart to take a next step and be facilitator for people. Mm -hmm. But your work at the time, you're working in recovery. Tell us a little bit about the work you were involved with over the past several years. Well, I worked at House of Hope. It was a place for troubled teenagers. And I did that for almost two years. And then I met my wife when I came back from Haiti the I don't know, second or third time, and uh, met my wife. Went, ended up moving down to Charlotte. Started working at Morningstar. Right, that's where we met, and then mm-hmm. that's where you and I met. And then I worked there for about six years, I guess, five or six years. Wow, working there really, really helped change me on the inside. It was almost like unfinished business. You know, the vision that Rick had there, and and. Steve and Robin and everyone, you know, the vision that they had there, if it didn't help anybody, it helped me. I grew up at PTO and my mom and dad both worked for Jim Baker. And so there was a lot, a lot of history there. And so just being a part of seeing it come alive again really helped bring some closure to a lot of things that I think I dealt with as a kid. I think that was almost like a drop off point, (laughs) temporary drop off point, you know, just to. Right. Right. I learned a lot there. I learned a lot about leadership. I learned a lot about mobilizing volunteers. I learned a lot about just a lot of things. The connections that I met there, you know, I still talk to a lot of people, including you to this day. And so, so it's just, it, there's a, a ton more that I learned there. But anyway, I, I started doing that. Funny story. We got laid off, you know, I think it was, what was it, 2008, between 2008 and 2010, somewhere in there was the real estate bubble bursting. I guess that's what people are calling it. But, you know, we had a huge layoff there. And so I guess I kind of took one for the team. (laughs) And so I was one of the first (laughs) ones to go and I didn't know how to take it at first. Now it was such a blessing. It catapulted me into what I'm doing now. At the time, you know, just a small little testimony, you know, because I really wanted to work with addicts. This was my true desire. You know, the thing that I've always longed for since I came out of recovery. So I just didn't know how I could get into the field. I had never been to school. I dropped out of high school twice in 10th grade, got my GED. Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel like I could ever get my you know, licensure or anything like that, you know, work in the field professionally. I didn't really want to do it in a faith-based setting because I wasn't sure that I could get something where I didn't have to be just a volunteer without any kind of credentials. And so I just wasn't sure how I could do it. But while I was at Morningstar, we used to go to another church, not because we didn't like Morningstar, but because I was there almost every day and through all the conferences and everything. So I I wanted to kind of go somewhere else where I knew I, I wouldn't sit in the sanctuary while the church was going on and worry about what lights are burned out or anything like that. I just wanted to go where I could truly hear the message and focus on it. And so when I got laid off, we were going to church like an hour away. When I got laid off, you know, we didn't have the money to keep doing that. So I was reading something, C.S. Lewis, he said, I strongly believe in going to the church closest to your home. So we did that. When we first got there, the pastor was asking me, what is it that you'd like to do, this and that? And so I said, you know, I'd love to be able to work with addicts and alcoholics and homeless one day. And so he said, well, we've got this young lady that comes here. She works in a program in Charlotte. You know, maybe I can introduce you to her. She comes ever so often, maybe once every three or four months. So he said, next time I see her, I'll introduce you to her. So she came the very next Sunday and he introduced us. And 
this was after I had already gotten laid off. I really didn't have a whole lot going on for a few months. She said, well, I work at a program in Charlotte. You know, if you want, you could fill out an application maybe for a, a paid volunteer or something like that. And so I said, okay. She called me weeks later and, uh, you know, said I could come in for an interview. And so I, I went in there and, and got an interview. And so I started and they started, you know, they called me like once a week or once every two weeks. And then it got to be more frequent. Then it was almost like I was working full time. So I had to quit doing, uh, you know, detailing because I was detailing cars just to buy some time. They started calling me a lot. So then I started full time working in residential, working with uh, adolescents and adults in the 28 day program. I guess it was the vice president came to me and said, you know, I, I really believe in you. We want to hire you on full time as a counselor. We want to pay for your trainings and all this stuff to get you certified. And, uh, you know, we do it. They do a lot of stuff in-house, but they also, you know, sent me out to a lot of trainings. They paid for a whole trip for me to go to Wilmington and get a week's worth of trainings. And they were so gracious through the whole time to get me certified through the board. And so I ended up getting certified through the board. And then I ended up becoming a methadone counselor at a methadone clinic. And so I did that, I guess, for about 10 years. December 30th was my last day doing methadone counseling. And now I'm doing what I do I started a week ago. Right, right. So for some of us here, as I remember, I think, from your description of it to me, a methadone is basically a step-down thing where folks can come off the hard stuff and kind of have a transition from being in a severely addicted, narcotic addictions and such of the kind. Am I saying that right? It's a lot more complicated than what I can say in just a few minutes, but basically it's treatment for opioid addiction. You got heroin, you got your hydrocodone, oxycodone, things like that. And then nowadays it's fentanyl. Fentanyl is taking over like crazy. So basically what it is, is the opiates attached to the receptors in your brain and your neurological pathways, they, re- they attach to the receptors for you know a short amount of time. And doing those drugs also gives you the euphoria. And about three or four hours, those are coming off and you're going through withdrawal and you can get really sick anywhere from just nausea, cramping, restlessness, restless leg, all the above. You're just getting really sick. And so oftentimes it's very, very hard to get off of it. The withdrawals just paralyze you. And so it's really hard for anybody to be able to, you know, live, focus on their responsibilities, their kids, their work, you know, just everyday life. It's hard for them to focus on that throughout the day because they're sick. And so the need for a, a, a fix is, and, and at this point, they're not even trying to get high. They're just trying not to feel sick. And so the constant need to get more is is there all throughout the day. And so, you know, then they come into a, a methadone treatment facility, you get the counseling, you get the doctor, you get a nurse, you get your daily dose. And so the methadone basically attaches to the receptor for uh, anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. The dose varies just depending on mostly just the, the person's history of use, you know, long-term use. So uh, it, it can vary. And so that's why the doctor's there. It's, it's under, you know, a lot of, um, you know, you got a, the a doctor's attention. You got a nurse there to help you, you know, do a constant assessments, things like that. And then you got the counseling portion all side by side so that the patient can receive everything that they need all throughout the day. And so they come there and get their dose. And so this just helps them to get stable and where they're not feeling sick. 
and you don't get the euphoria. You're not getting high or anything like that. Of course, if you take too much, you could feel a little bit of euphoria. You might nod off, get real sleepy. Too high is not good. Too low is not good. So the purpose is to get right there at a happy medium so that you can function throughout the day, feel normal and uh, fulfill all your responsibilities throughout the day with no problem. So in the meantime, you know, people are getting back on their feet, they're getting jobs, they're getting, you know, they're taking care of their responsibilities. And so after all this takes place, you know, and they're stable, they're living a happy life, as happy as they can get it. And then you start to taper out. I don't know much about that, but I know you've seen a lot of that process really close up. And I appreciate the work that you've been doing over all these years and have been helping folks get from where they are to where they're headed. You know, it's one step at a time, of course. During those years, I know we would often come back to the fact that there was something in your heart that you were feeling and that you were sensing and that you were wanting to do. And you were kind of waiting on that, preparing, planning, thinking it through, writing it out. I think that was happening pretty much the whole time you were in methadone counseling. Am I right on that? Well, I originally got into methadone at the time, you know, I had a tough time getting into it. You know, there's a big stigma with methadone clinics. And so it's difficult right off the bat because the people that I was talking to in the beginning, you know, it's like, it's like they're just switching one drug for another, you know, and there's a big stigma around it. So it was very difficult at first. My stepdad, who's, you know, he passed away last year. Well, no, 2020. He was a huge impact in my life. He told me a couple of things that really uh, changed my mind about it. And he said, St. Francis of Assisi said, if go forth, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. <laughs> right. He would say that. Or if you see somebody broke down on the side of the highway, are you going to go up to him and say, hey, I'll help you, but I need you to ask the Lord into your heart before I do. I guess the main thing was, you know, he said, somebody's going to be there to help them you know, it might as well be you. Mm. And that really meant a lot to me because it was like, I felt like I was getting into it as just an accident, you know, because I didn't have anywhere else to use my credentials at the time because I wanted to be a residential counselor, but I couldn't because, you know, with the way the insurance and all that stuff set up, they prefer you to have a master's degree and more experience. But methadone is a little different. You know, you can have the credentials I had. And so it was almost just like a last resort for me. But the reason I've been in it for 10 years is I fell in love with it. You know, I fell in love with the people coming in and the opioid epidemic right now is insane. You know, I don't know if you see the numbers, but just people that are dying on on fentanyl and heroin is is astronomical right now. Man, for sure. It's a runaway, kind of a runaway train, it, it seems like for sure. Thanks for unpacking that a little bit for us so we would understand. Over the years, and especially in recent years, you know, we talk about where your heart was, what you were hoping to do. I want to dig into a little bit. We probably got about 10 minutes left here. I want to get into the part with your story. You went through a process, and it was kind of a hurry up and wait process, I know. It seemed like it a couple of times. This is kind of a dream come true story and podcast in my mind because you're stepping in now to something that's been in your heart for a long time to be that bridge, to be that facilitator, that person, that gap filler, if you will. I know you just stepped into this and there's a lot of road yet in front of you, but how has this come together over the last couple of years 
that you have exited kind of the trajectory you were on and you're going in the direction of what's been in your heart. These 10 years in methadone just really brought a lot of clarity to my vision. You know, it brought me a lot of experience and just knowing exactly what is needed. Before it was just like a broad vision of just I wanted to be there for the gap. But now it's just like a lot of detail, you know, through these past 10 years. And, you know, it was a lot of like, I really want to do this. I really want to. I've called you before. Like, I think this is it, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, it just didn't happen. I get sad and then have to wait a few more years. And, you know, it's almost like I just kept being reminded of that chapter in Acts where, it's ta- where it talks about Paul going to the, trying to go to this place and the Holy Spirit preventing him to go. And then mm-hmm. he tried to go here and the Holy Spirit preventing him to go there. And then, you know, it's like, then finally, like I'm at the place now where, okay, now it's been confirmed in so many ways. This is where I'm supposed to be. And in methadone, you know, we are there as their counselors, but we can only really, with the way the regulations are, we can't see them outside of the clinic. We can't approach them. We, you know, because of confidentiality and everything like that, we can't anything to do with them outside the clinic. So while we're in the clinic, the relationship basically is, okay, here's a referral. Aside from counseling, you know, a part of it is case management. So we're basically just getting out referrals. I know of a place here, I know of a place there, but really you're depending on this person taking themselves there. It just got harder and harder to see like once a person leaves, they've got their dose, they've got this, they've got that. And so the likelihood of them actually following through with that referral is, I hate to say it, you know, but slim to none. And so I want to be out there. I want to be out there being that person to work alongside of clinics like this or other programs saying, hey, look, let me be at point of contact for you. I'll take them there. I'll do this. I'll be the hands and feet that they need right now in this vulnerable state. And so that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to connect them, be that conduit for them between point A and point B. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You saw the drop off. You saw the gap and you saw some missing pieces there that you legally were prevented. I think one time you told me in the words you used, we were talking about it. You said, you know, I could be having this counseling relationship with someone who's coming for treatment and whatnot. But if I see them at the grocery store, I can't strike up a conversation with them. I can't try to have some input in their life outside of this environment because of the regulations. And I know you're a super pastoral dude. Your heart is really for people to reach out to people to be a difference and an encouragement for that person. That must have hurt. I see these people. I can't say I can't reach out to them there. That's the pain I think you were in at the time. Only thing you can do is scoot closer and closer to them, hoping that they say, oh, hey, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's a little work. They got to initiate that loophole. (laughs) Yeah. But I know you called me a while back and said, look, I've been asked to have this meeting with high government officials and this and that. And you felt like, again, it was your vision and what you wanted to try to do was coming together. When was that, a year ago or two? Yeah, it was about a a little over a year, I guess. Okay. Yeah, but you got called into a meeting with a government person who was in a position of influence to help move things forward. And they wanted to sit down with you and talk about your vision, I think. Is that the way it went? 
Well, so the thing that I started just thinking of nonstop is how in the world can I just walk around and talk to people and meet people and get involved in people's life? How can I do this and get an income doing it? You know, because there's nothing out there, you know, like I just want to be able to walk around in the community and just meet people and get paid doing it, you know, because it's not about the money, of course, but I got a family to feed. Sure. So anyway, I was out with my kids one day and I walked up to the government building, asked if I could speak to the government official. And surprisingly, they just let me on through. And so I ended up, me and my kids went up to her office and we just started talking. And I spilled, well, at the time, 19 years worth of beans, you know, to her and told her, you know, like, this is really what I want to do. To this day, I don't know how it how I stayed in the office as long as I did. I was so excited to have that opportunity. I just let everything go. At the end, she said, son, I'm, I love it. I love the vision, but there's nothing I can do for you. You know, we left from there and I was excited. But my oldest boy, he looked at me and said, dad, was that a failure? The meeting, it was a failure, right? I'm sorry it didn't work out for you. And I, I told him, I said, son, I've learned all the way up to this point that there is no failure. You never know who she's going to have dinner with six months from now. You just never know. You never know. And I just, I was just focused on planting the seed. And if she met somebody later that I could talk to, then that would be great. But that's when I called you and just was, I was excited. I couldn't even mow the rest of the lawn because I was so excited that I just met with her. <laughs> hey, the fact that you got through the door and got in the office and got to tell the story, those were things the Lord was lining up. Right. And I was telling a really dear friend of my family's that lives close to us about, and this is just God working from the very beginning. I mean, the, the, a friend of ours, she's watched me before. She's been involved in my family's life from the very beginning, since I was little. We were led to move up here. And, you know, we lived just right down the street from her and her husband. They both, the government official and the friend of our families, they both knew this other lady. The friend of the family. And they both talked about me to this other lady. And so the lady then sought me out after I sought the vision out. I didn't know to seek her specifically out, but I, they were both saying, oh, wow, your vision lines up with this guy that I just met or, you know, this guy that I've known, you know, all his life. You know, this lines up with what he's passionate about. So we made it. We had a meeting and. So unfortunately, you know, just financial wise, I couldn't take the opportunity at the time because it wouldn't line up with where we were financially as a family. I was like, Lord, really? Like I was that close. <laughs> <laughs> so I waited, I waited and waited and for another year. And then I talked to a friend from Morningstar at talking about connections that have lasted. Great guy, financial guru. I talked to him about some things going on in our personal finances and just asking for some advice and everything. And at the end of our conversation, he said, Jason, pray for increase. So I was like, all right. After I got off the phone with him, I started praying for increase. I'm like, Lord, please, I need increase. I need, I need some help. And uh, sure enough, the next day, the lady from Hope Coalition, she called, she texted me and said, hey, can we meet? You know, I think we've got something that may work for you. And so I was so excited. I was just like, yeah, that's fine. You know, but at home, I was jumping off the walls. So I was like, I think this is it. I think this is it, you know. <laughs> so anyway, you know, it was tough. Immediately, I started having peace, peace like I've never had before, Scott. It was like there was no doubt that this was it. 
before it was just like, could this work or could that work? Or I just knew something was in my heart. I, I knew that I had arrived. It was that point to where it was almost just like the yes. Lord separated my heart from what I was currently doing to what I'm doing now. The faith with not knowing where, oh, Scott, it, it was almost like, you know, you're telling a child, hey, I've got a surprise for you. We're going to take you on a surprise trip. And the kid just has total faith that you're just going to bless the socks off of him. He doesn't even need to ask. He just knows. And so I had the interview with them, the second interview, and they not only worked for us financially, you know, I got the increase, you know, it was more than what I was currently making, but I got, I got the increase, but more than anything, you know, it was just, they were just like, we're just going to let you go. We're going to let you go in the city and let you do it. And I was just, I was floored. I immediately told my, my current <laughs> boss, you know, like I'm not leaving on any bad terms, you know, it wasn't, nothing drove me out, but I feel like this is the cul-de-sac of my road. Wow. And so I've already started, you know, meeting them. They're they're amazing. It's an amazing team and I'm just so excited and already getting involved in the community and that's that. Well, let me ask you. Thank God for getting you through that. When the desire comes, it's the tree of life, right? I mean, that's what the scripture teaches us, right? But hope deferred or hope that takes too long makes the heart sick. And I know you soldiered on, if you will. You kept going. And you finally got to that finish line. I want to know, as we're closing up here, tell us a couple of the things that are on your heart that you're going to be working on. And also tell us how can we be praying for you in this new phase? Just to stay connected, you know, not to allow myself to get too busy. I find a lot of times in my life that my zeal often causes me to lose my boundaries. I really want to stay balanced. I really want my boundaries to stay appropriated. And I just don't want to get overworked and, and lose where I'm at with my family and let the work take over. So that's probably my biggest thing. You know, where I'm at now, it's like the old saying, you know, if the devil can't slow you down, I'll speed you up. And so I want to stay slow <laughs> right. so that I can stay vigilant and stay wise and stay aware of what's going on and not get too wrapped up into things. But, you know, just right. some of my main goals right now is I want to be with a person from beginning to end. It was like when I went to Haiti, that little boy said, y'all came down here, got us saved, now what? And, you know, that really, really uh, lingers in my heart today. I didn't want to be just a short-term missionary. I wanted what I'd do to have a long-lasting impact. And so that's really where it started for me as far as, you know, wanting to help somebody is being with them from beginning to end. You know, so that means when a person says, hey, I want help. Or you find an addict and it's just like, hey, I want help, you know, or they may not even want it yet. But just being that one person yeah. that never gives up on them when, every, when everybody else has given up on them, when all bridges are, are burned, you know, mm. just I just wanted to be there. And, and um, from beginning to end, I want to see them from the whole journey. I want to stick with them through the whole journey. Yeah. So basically getting them to the resources that they need to get them back on their feet help them to manage, you know, their life, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and to be able to watch them carry success. And so, you know, I know like with, mm. with me, one of the things that I learned, you know, the first time I tried to get clean was I tried to get my life back too quick. And I think that's mm. where a lot of people in recovery, they get tripped up at is they want to get life back too quick. So they'll get several jobs, try to do this, try to do that, try to convince everybody that they're changed. 
and you know you just end up doing things for everybody else. Now you're in debt to everybody else. And so the main point I want to try to get across to people is where the addiction started from the outside in, per se. Now, when you talk about recovery, you're going from the inside out. So a lot of times you have to develop the character, you know, mm. redevelop the character for the responsibilities to come, if that makes mm. any sense. Yeah, so like, yeah, it does. If I had gotten what I what I have now 20 years earlier, I would have made a train wreck out of it. You know, so there was a lot right. of the 20 years was just me developing the character to be able to handle the responsibility of what I have now. That makes sense, bro. We're going to be praying for you that the Lord continues to be near to you and you don't get sped up too fast. Yeah, I think that's the hard part, right? You know, it's kind of like, I guess, winning the lottery. What it might look like is, you know, you spend (laughs) your whole life buying tickets, but then when you actually win it, it's like, okay, what do I do with it now? You know, that's where I'm at right now. I'm just like, okay, I spent 20 years getting to this place, you know, and now it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, what do I do? I sit in the office and I'm just like, what do I do now? Man. Well, you know, it reminds me of Joshua, right? The whole time through the wilderness, Joshua's Moses's assistant, basically, you know. And then, of course, right before they're going in, Moses goes up on the Mount Pisgah or whatever. Interestingly enough. (laughs) (laughs) And the Lord says to Joshua, get up, cross the river, go in, start conquering these cities. So I really feel like that to me seems like there's some similarities. You're going to face some battles in front of you. You're going to face some territory to be gained, influence to be exercised, and the Lord's going to be with you. That is really cool, man. We're out of runway here, but if someone wants to find out more about the program or get in contact with you, I want to make sure and give them some way to reach out. I think we might have done that last time as well. Any final words you want to say, and then we'll give them the contact and we'll conclude. I appreciate you letting me come on, and I appreciate the influence that you've been in my life. Thank you for being a friend and a mentor. Thank you for praying for me and being along this journey. I'm happy to present amen. you with the with the answers to your prayers. Amen, amen. Appreciate you being the conduit to so many, you know, what you do as well. well. Thank you, bro. Thank you. I really, those are very touching words, and I really appreciate it. I'm thankful to be rejoicing with you. In terms of being in contact with you, if someone wants to reach out for more information, or maybe someone listening has a person they think could benefit, and maybe they're in the area where you could be a blessing, how would someone get in touch with you? I think we already we gave the Hasten Jarris email before. Is that how you want people to reach you if, if they get a... Yeah, that'll be fine. Okay. So we'll backlink all of that in the in the show notes so folks don't have to try to take something down while they're driving or otherwise occupied, we'll have those details there for you. Man, thank you so much for being here, bro. And thank you for your persistence getting across the goal line there. Praise the Lord. Thank you for that. All right, man. I really appreciate it. We'll be in touch for sure. Stick with me for just a sec here. I am Scott McClelland, and this is FX Missions Podcasting. If you'd like to contact me or us, please do so at fxmissions.com. This Haiti travel and trips that Jason took were pivotal points in his life. As for myself, I've had a few as well. Specifically, the first time I went to Mexico City, the Lord really rung my bell and changed my worldview, maybe is a better way to say it. 
I'd like to hear from you about something that God has done in terms of a pivotal point in your life. Email me at scott at fxmissions.com. Would you do us a favor in addition to sending me the pivotal point? Uh, share this show and this episode with someone you know who is wondering about their purpose or calling. Just open up your podcast app, click on the episode, find the share button, and send it to them with a quick note about why they may like it. I would really appreciate that. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you and look forward to having you with us soon. Thanks for being with us. If God spoke to you today, we'd love to hear about it. Click through to the episode notes on your podcast app, choose the link for your favorite social media platform, and share it with us there. And if you've not done this already, follow the show in your favorite podcast app at fromtheforefront.com slash follow. Click the link in the episode notes, choose your favorite podcast app, and follow us there to get every episode for free.